God, enlighten the eyes of our hearts to know the hope to which Christ has called us. Amen. Please be seated. How many of us know that Jesus is fond of a little bit of hyperbole? A little bit of exaggeration in some of his stories. Jesus loves to use scandalous language, borderline offensive imagery, and nowhere more so than in his parables. And that means that we get into all kinds of trouble as modern readers trying to build watertight, systematic theologies out of Jesus' stories. Because as a first century listener, you're hearing Jesus tell a story, and right away you're picking up on the joke. You're catching the sarcasm of it, the irony, you're hearing situations that you know are absurd, characters that are too good or too bad to possibly be real. But we as modern readers are incorrigibly literal people. And so we don't know what to do with the kind of, the kind of picture that Jesus is painting in parables like this one. A king sends his servants to go and invite some of his friends and neighbours to his son's wedding banquet, and instead of just RSVPing no, they kill the mailman. They literally shoot the messenger. And so then instead of ignoring it and letting it go, the king in response murders everybody who flaked on the party, and as if that wasn't quite enough, just to be sure, he burns down their entire city. What Jesus is setting up here is a vision of a petty, tyrannical king, far from the good guy in the story. But here's the problem. We read a parable that begins, the kingdom of heaven is like, and what do we think right away? This must be talking about God, mustn't it? He says the kingdom of heaven is like a king. He frames this story in deliberate imperial language. And right away, if you're a first century Jewish person listening to Jesus, you're thinking of the great kings of Israel's history, David, Solomon. But actually, there's probably another image of kingship that populates your imagination even more than the great Hebrew kings. You hear Jesus say the kingdom of heaven is like a king, and who you're really thinking of is Caesar. Kingship language would have elicited a boom and a hiss from the listening audience. And then Jesus plays into that trap. He says this is a king who's petty and tyrannical and bloodthirsty. Yes, 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 nod the listeners. But wait, did he not say the kingdom of heaven is like this? The kingdom of heaven is like Caesar, like an imperial oppressor. And if the kingdom of heaven is like that, is Jesus saying that God is like that? Texts like these have been much maligned and weaponized throughout Christian history in the service of oppressing whomever Christendom particularly hated at that time. And no one has been more on the receiving end of that treatment than Jewish people themselves. Christians have used texts like these to sponsor anti-Semitic violence, to support bad readings of scripture in which the church is the new Israel that has replaced God's covenant with the people of Israel. Even that God is punishing the Jews for ostensibly rejecting the Messiah. That's an ancient heresy that has no place in the modern church and has to be resisted without qualification. And it's a gross misreading of this text in particular, not least because Matthew is writing to a predominantly Jewish community. But what it does tell us is that we often read texts like these in a way that witnesses to the fact that we are always looking 
for clear dividing lines between who's in and who's out, between the good and the bad. And we might not be clumsy enough to give the game away with such unapologetic language as that, but we do talk about the Christian and the non-Christian, the believer and the non-believer. Even if you're a particular type of person of faith, you might use the language of the saved and the lost. Our language betrays our deep commitment to demarcating between those who are included and those who are not. And then Jesus tells a story in which good and bad are not the opposite categories at all. Indeed, it says the king invites everybody to the party, regardless of whether they're good or bad. And Jesus goes even further and suggests that even the one throwing the party, the one ostensibly standing in for God in the story, isn't all that good either. These parables serve to destabilize our easy answers, to break open our clean and watertight theologies that feed our confidence that we know enough to be on the right side of God, that we're safely ensconced in God's good books and that everybody else is the bad and wicked ones outside weeping and gnashing their teeth. So often in Jesus' parables, the driving theme of the story is that people who thought they had a handle on who was in and who was out will find themselves disturbingly surprised to find out who made the cut. And so Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like a bunch of self-righteous sheep finding out that God wants nothing to do with them and a bunch of down-and-out goats discovering that they are God's precious flock. He says it's like a son who packs up and leaves, telling his, his father he's as good as dead to him, and then coming back smelling like a pigsty and finding himself forgiven and embraced. He says the kingdom of heaven is like a man from the other side of the tracks, the kind of person Jews thought was good for nothing, turning out to be the figure of goodness and charity. Or as David showed with us last week, kingdom of heaven is like workers getting paid the same wage regardless of how long or how hard they've worked because the economy of God is not fair, but it is just. And so no wonder if that's the point that Jesus is trying to get across so often. No wonder that one of his favorite metaphors for the kingdom is that the kingdom of heaven is like a party, like a banquet, like a feast. And it's a party to which you never guess who's invited. The Gospel writer Luke has his own version of this story, a little bit more sanitized, a little less violent. And I think it can help us to get some of the nuance of what Jesus is really driving at when he tells this parable. In Luke's version, the host invites all his rich and powerful friends and neighbors, and just like for Matthew, they make their varying excuses. They say, we're too busy, they're snowed under at work, they've got other priorities or other relationships to attend to. And so the host tells his servants to go out into the streets and alleys of the town and to bring in the poor, the blind, the least and the forgotten. Those who aren't too busy to come, but who have never been invited before. The good, the bad, the ugly, all are invited to the table. You see, I think far from giving us license to exclude those we don't like, this difficult little story is really inviting us to question the character of our hospitality. 
Do we draw neat dividing lines between those who we think belong here and those who don't, however unspoken those lines might be? What does our shared life together tell us about who we think is invited to the table and who's excluded? Someone sneaks their way into the party and is summarily thrown out because they're not wearing the right garb. Which is to say that the hospitality the king offers is not to be taken lightly. Maybe this text isn't meant to be systematized into easy definitions. Maybe it's not meant to serve our need to calculate who is in and who is out. Maybe it's meant to subvert those easy definitions, to challenge just how seriously we take the character of our welcome. Just how important is hospitality to us, really? Are we comfortable with leaving some outside when we make our way into the celebration to which Christ invites all? Jesus seems to want to tell us that the quality of our welcome is such a serious affair that it can only really be captured in language that's designed to shock us. The language of power and empire. The language of violence. A thing so important that people will kill and be killed for it. Jesus is borrowing the most potent metaphors he can find in order to shock us out of our indifference about who may or may not be included and excluded from God's table and from the life of community. And I don't know about you, but I think we need a little of this shock therapy in the church today. The church in the West has spent too much time and energy drawing lines between those we want to include and those we don't, sidling up to power and influence at the expense of others left out of our welcome. The church is in that part of its story where the dividing lines have not served us or the world, and it's time to go out into the streets and alleys and invite the last and the left behind, the disempowered and the disconnected. Nothing is more pressing for the church's future than listening, really listening, to Christ's call to take seriously the quality of our welcome. For as the theologian of disability Thomas Reynolds put it, the most basic question of human existence is whether there is welcome at the heart of things. In a world where the lines are drawn across class, socioeconomic status, race, gender, sexuality, the question of whether there is welcome in the world, of whether I am wanted and valued and embraced is as pressing as it has ever been. It is a question for which the people of God gather around a common table to give an answer. For it is through the quality of our hospitality and the warmth of our welcome that we witness to that great Eucharistic table to which all are invited and invited without qualification. Whereas the prophet says the Lord will prepare for all peoples a feast and death will be swallowed up forever and the tears wiped from all faces where disgrace is taken from the earth and the chorus rings out, Lo, this is our God, the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. May the church look more and more like that wild and wonderful heavenly party where all gather as honoured guests to share at the table of the King and to say thanks be to God. Amen.